Good morning, church. Good to see all of you and good for us both to be back with each other. School year starts, another ministry season starts, and a new book in the Minor Prophets, as Lynn has already introduced to us, this little three-chapter book called Nahum. Don't be afraid to look at the page number, 782 in the Pew Bible uh, or in the table of contents. It's okay, Nahum. Three chapters. We start just a rather introductory sermon today covering two chapters, and then uh, we have a little more time next week. As Lynn mentioned, we are looking at a book, a prophet, who came a hundred years or so after Jonah. Jonah went to Nineveh, most significant city in Assyria, warned them to repent, and to his great disappointment, they did, and God saved them. God saved every one of them, even the king, even the animals. He spared them of his judgment. Great work of salvation. Well, within a hundred years, they had forgotten it. There was geopolitical ascendancy. They were successful financially, and they forgot the Lord, turned back to their old practices. And now Nahum comes, yes, to warn Nineveh, and if they would repent, he would save them again. As often, he says, as I promise calamity on a nation and they turn back to me, I will relent concerning that calamity. If they had repented, he would have saved them again, but they did not. We'll learn more about that next week. But he's also preaching to Judah, to God's people. There's a revival going on in Judah. This is about 615 or so, 615 years before Jesus comes. And Josiah, the great king, bringing reformation, restoring worship and tearing down the idols. There is revival in the nation, but the people are discouraged. Assyria has done great and awful things to them. Taken away 27,000 at one point, 200,000 people at another point, destroyed 46 cities. And they're wondering, when will justice come? Will you save us, Lord? They're prospering at our expense. Will you hear us? Maybe you have the same question. Your own private life, your family, your nation. Lord, when are you going to hear us and bring justice? Well, here's the encouragement. It comes ultimately from the cross anticipated in Nahum himself. Let's read it together beginning in chapter 1 and we'll reference verses in chapter 2 as we proceed. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous An avenging God, the Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. 
The Lord is good. A stronghold, a castle in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He'll make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart, speaking to Judah. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods. I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains. The feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Open our eyes, O Lord, that we would behold beautiful And awesome things from this portion of the gospel that's contained in the Bible, the Word of God. That we might experience your peace as it's found only in the cross of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, God's people said together, Amen. It was 1998, Robert Bellot received a phone call. From one of his grandmother's friends, Balot was in his office in Cincinnati, Ohio. He's a defense attorney, corporate defense attorney. And the call came from Wilbur Tennant, a farmer in Parkersburg, West Virginia. Mr. Balot, he said, I understand from your grandmother that you are a lawyer and I am looking for someone to hear me, someone to help me. I can't find anybody to listen to me. My cows are dying. I've lost 190 cows, all kinds of diseases. The vet doesn't know what's happening. My wife is sick, very sick. Doctor doesn't know where it came from. I think I know. I think it comes from DuPont upstream from me. They're dumping a lot of waste in the property next door to me. It's leaching into our water. It's into our drinking water, killing my cows. It's killing my wife. Nobody will listen to me. I'm just a little farmer. It's a big company going to listen to me. Biggest employer in town. Nobody wants me to stir up anything. It could hurt their employment. But maybe you could help me. He wasn't sure he could, but he had to honor his grandmother. He went to the place and began to look around. He saw the devastation. His heart broke. He filed for disclosure and there was an EPA disclosure. It didn't show any, any harm being done. But then he thought maybe these are chemicals that the EPA is not even aware of yet. He, he filed for another disclosure. They 
They gave him a deluge of documents, thinking this will discourage him. He'll give up. He's not going to make enough to do anything about this, but he dug in. He found they knew what was happening with, these, with this compound called PFOA, a, a forever compound that lived forever in the soil, lived forever in the human body. And they knew for decades that it caused cancer, that it caused birth defects, that it killed animals. They tried to cover it up, tried to hide the waste. He kept on pursuing. Eventually, the company agreed to settle, offered a settlement to Mr. Tennant, and Mr. Tennant said no, even though he now at this time is also dying of cancer. He and his wife both dying of cancer. He said, Mr. Balot said, you should, you should take the offer. You can, you can pay for your, 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 your medical expenses. You can finish with some, with some comfort in life and some pleasure in life. No, he said, I'm, I'm fighting for justice. I want justice not just for my family, but for this city, because this is going to kill this city. Mr. Balot went on fighting. The tenants died. He went on fighting. He wasn't getting paid. His employer kept his, the supervising partner kept cutting his salary. People opposed him. He became financially destitute. His marriage was on the rocks. His children were insecure. He had, a, he had a stroke from the stress, but he kept on fighting. And one, one day he won one settlement. He won another and then another. And finally, DuPont settled. And he secured ongoing medical care for the 70,000 residents who would forever be affected as well. I'm just looking for someone who will help me, who will listen to me, Mr. Tennant said. I'm just a little guy, a little farmer. He found it in Robert Balot. Maybe you identify, not because you have such a legal case, but because you're wondering, is there anybody out there who listens to me? Is there anybody aware of the injustice that I'm suffering as an individual? Or the injustice, the unrighteousness that I'm experiencing in our family. What's happening in our city? What's happening in our country? Is there anybody out there who is aware, who will take up our case, bring us justice? The good news from the book of Nahum, the good news for every book of the Bible, especially the book of Revelation is, yes, there is good news. It is King Jesus who died to satisfy justice of God and who reigns until he has brought perfect justice on all his and all our enemies if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. What would convince you to submit your case to him? It must be that he is good, as verse 7 says. He is good. And as a good God... He assures that he will make all things right, at least by the great day. This good God, this good Savior is one who, first of all, you must know, pursues his enemies. That's verses, it's really the whole of chapter 1. 
It's really the whole of chapters 1 and 2. He pursues his enemies. He is assuring Judah, I see what's happening. I have taken account of everything that has been done to you. And it appears that they are succeeding now. But just like I brought down Thebes, the capital of Egypt, Egypt, I'm going to bring down Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And I will bring down every nation thereafter. And every other force that holds its fist up against me. And tries to rival me as the king of creation, doers of evil. Now he does that by reminding us and reminding these, these people of Judah who he is, his attributes. That first attribute that we encounter in verses 1 through 6 and verses 11 and 12 of chapter 2 is his anger. God is an angry God. You say, I think I thought, Pastor, you've told us over and over and over that God is a loving God. I have. And both are true. One would not be authentic without the other. God's love would not be authentic and reliable without his anger. His anger would not be authentic and reliable and trustworthy and good news without his love. Now, we know this phenomenon. It's not, uh, it's not too foreign from us. We know, we've said it before, that what you love is revealed by your anger. Your anger reveals what you love. Now, just, just think about this for a minute. Suppose your son is practicing his fastball for the school baseball team, unfortunately in your living room, and he lets it fly right into your brand new state-of-the-art, cutting-edge technology, flat-screen TV. And you jump up and down with joy, don't you? That's such a good target, son. You've got an arm there. No, in the moment, we have a flash of anger because in that moment, we love the TV more than our child. Now, more seriously, uh, Suppose that same child is out on the playground and he's being pulverized by a bully. What do you do? Do you clap and say, that's really great. Hit him again. I'm so happy about it. No, there'd be something wrong with you if you did. You're angry because you love that child. It reveals your love. The love of God is revealed by what makes him angry. And what makes him angry is when his people are abused, mistreated, even when they are abusing themselves. It makes God angry because they are attacking the apple of his eye. How my dad, as you know, taught me a lot of things. He taught me this relationship between love and anger. The things... There's only three things that he got mad at me about. You've heard about one of them. He got mad at me. He got angry with me, red in the face, angry with me when I endangered myself. He got angry with me when I would stand by passively and somebody uh, was, who was vulnerable was being hurt or attacked or abused got angry about that. You're never passive. And he got angry when he saw ingratitude. Now, do you know when it came along 
uh, came time for me to learn the three uses of the law in theology. It was easy for me to understand that because I saw it in my dad, the three uses of the law. We say in scripture that God's law, and, and by the way, law and justice and righteousness, these are all part of the same universe of meaning. And there are three uses of the law, we say in theology. The first use is to restrain evil. The second is to drive to Christ for your salvation. And the third is to provide a guide for us in living in response to grace. My dad's anger reflected those uses of the law. He would get angry when I did not, when I endangered myself or endangered someone else because the law is intended for God to protect those who make, who are born in his image. And then he, and then uh, the second use of the law is to, is to to drive us to despair and drive us to the refuge that is found only in Jesus from the just wrath of God. He wanted me to imitate that work of the Savior in coming to the aid of those who are vulnerable. And the third was, in response to God's grace, we have the law as a guide for how we live and flourish. God is angry. That's good news. What makes him angry? That's good news. And what's more, it's good news for us that the God who loves us is not only angry at his enemies and our enemies and everything that is, that threatens our destruction, but he has the power to follow through with his anger and to bring justice and punishment. It's one thing for us to get upset about something, to stand up for the vulnerable, but if we don't have power to execute it or to protect, that's very frustrating. That's not the problem with your Lord and Christ. So he says in verses 9 through 13, in chapter 2, verses 3 to 10, he mocks his enemies. The Assyrians thought, you know, it's because, it's because our gods are superior to yours that we've been able to run over you so easily. It's how we've taken 200 plus thousand of your people away. That's how we've plundered your cities. God says, you are no match for me. None of your enemies is a match for me. And so God terrorizes, giving them opportunity to repent. That's what he did through Jonah. Forty days and Nineveh will be destroyed. They took it seriously. They repented and God relented of his calamity. God uses his terrors. He uses his threats to bring about redemption, not because he's insecure and wants people to be put in their place. He can do that in your life too. If you're an unbeliever and you feel the anger of God, you feel those threats, you're afraid of judgment, that's not God being a bully. That's God being kind, warning you ahead of time to repent. It's also true for the Christian. The Christian, when he's living in or she's living in rebellion, living disobediently, saying, you know, I know God's a God of grace, so I can do whatever I want to. I can break any of the Ten Commandments, any of the principles of Scripture I wish. I can be covetous, or that's selfishness, or I can, I can, I can, I can fib, I can lie, I can, I can steal, take credit for something that's not mine. I can have premarital sex or extramarital sex. That's just, you know, that's just God not being with it. And I can disobey my 
leaders. I can kill another person's reputation because God is a God of grace. But God gets angry and God brings terrors to the true believer when he is living so carelessly. Not because he's a bullying God, but because he's set up the universe for one to run this way. Uh, Tim Keller used to say that when you try to do harm to God's law, you will do harm to yourself. That's the way God has wired the world. God gives you laws so that life will go well with you, so that you will flourish, so that you don't live in regret and shame. God gives you his law not to hinder your fun, but to cause you to thrive as an image bearer of God. And when you don't have the wisdom to repent and turn away from those sins, God can sometimes send terrors, threats into your life. John Calvin called them gospel threats. Those warnings that work with Christians, they say, I, I, better, I better repent. I better come back in obedience. I remember a man returning from from the war in Iraq. Once he was in my congregation, I knew him before he left. And, when he, and he had uh, been, a, he was a member of the church. His family are faithful attenders of the church. But he came back to me and he made an appointment with me. First thing back, he was an officer in the army and he came back and he said, I want to follow the Lord more seriously than I've ever followed him before. I said, I thought you were a disciple before I was. But he said, I had grown careless there weren't as many, there wasn't as much accountability for me there. He never told me what had, what, what, where he had been compromising, but he said, I had no, little accountability. I'd become careless in my Christian faith and the Lord terrified me. He never described how he had been terrified either. But he would grow ashen when he would tell the story. His heart would start to beat faster. It still was triggering to him to think about it. And he said, the Lord was gracious to me to terrorize me and to bring me to repentance. And I want to follow the Lord. Grace is not the opposite of fear. When a loving God is pursuing you to bring you out of danger back to himself. We, we sing about it in our favorite song on grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Twas grace that taught my heart to what? Fear. And grace, my fears relieved. It's grace that causes you to fear when you're wandering away from him because he loves you, wants to bring you back. There's another Lesser known hymn, Lord with glowing heart, I'd praise thee. Praise the grace whose threats alarmed thee. Praise the grace whose threats alarmed thee, roused thee from thy fatal ease. And once that grace had roused you and drew you back to the cross, praise the grace whose promise warmed thee. Praise the grace that whispers peace. What you read about in verse 15. Praise the Lord for his anger born out of love, his power 
to rescue us, born out of love. Praise the Lord for being a righteous God who provides us the righteousness to escape his wrath. That's the second point. We come to a good God, known to be good, because he is not only one who pursues his foes, but he preserves us, preserves his people. You notice that uh, in chapter 1, in verse 3, Nahum alludes to a passage that Jonah quoted. It's just the first part, or the, the uh, first and last part. Verse 3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and then he will by no means clear the guilty. Why does Nahum mention that here? Let me remind you of what we learned in Jonah. God told Jonah, go and preach against Nineveh. Jonah tried to run away. Then God said, uh, clarified, go preach to Nineveh 40 days and you, they will be destroyed. And Jonah said, I can preach that message. And he, he walks around a few days. And before the 40 days, all of Nineveh has repented. Jonah goes out east of the city and he pouts because he really was hoping that God would light up that city. It caused his people so much pain, worked so much evil. God has a number of lessons for him. And then then he asked Jonah, Jonah, why are you angry that I spared Nineveh? 120,000 who don't know their right hand from the left and many animals as well. Why are you angry? And Jonah said, I'll tell you why I'm angry. Chapter four, verse two. I'll tell you why I'm angry because I knew this is what you were going to do. That's why I tried to kill myself before going there. I knew you were going to save these people. That's the kind of God you are. I knew you were the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and mercy and forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. I knew that's the kind of God you are. And as soon as I set foot in that place and gave them the warnings, they would be threatened by it back into your loving embrace. I did not want that to happen. Now, how did Jonah know God's grace so deeply in his heart and soul that he was willing to try to kill himself to prevent it from coming to his enemies. It's because he had learned it from his earliest days in his Jewish catechism from Moses and those who repeated this passage 10 times through the rest of the Bible. Moses, long before Jonah, looked down after he'd gotten the law, after God had saved them out of Egypt and his people are committing gross sexual immorality in the valley and the, and they're worshiping a golden calf. And he says, I got to know who you are before I lead these people any farther. And God said, I'll tell you who I am. I am the Lord, compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and mercy. Truth keeps loving kindness to thousands, forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet I will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, punishing iniquity to two, two and three generations. Moses must have surely gone, I don't think you heard the question in view of these people. And that essence of God is repeated throughout the scripture. It's like a spine that runs through it. If you can only memorize one passage of scripture, it'd be that Exodus 34, six and seven, the scriptures, it'll unlock the scriptures to you. This is who God is in his essence. 
He is the God who keeps loving kindness to thousands of generations, punishes iniquity to two and three. His, his grace overwhelms his judgment, but he is just and righteous. He is just and loving at the same time. It's not this but that. He is just and righteous, just as Nahum says in verse 3. Nineveh, when they repented, experienced his, his mercy. When they rebel, they're going to experience his wrath unless they turn. But how do those two fit together? How can one God be loving and just at the same time? There's only one thing that could bring those two character qualities together in integrity, and it's the cross. Now you say you've leapfrogged from Nahum into the New Testament. That's not responsible exegesis, George. But I didn't leapfrog. It's right here. Let me tell you how it's here. When Nahum refers in verse 3 to Exodus 34, 6, and 7, he's preaching the cross of Jesus Christ. Here's how. Because God said, I forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. Every category of sin, I forgive it. The Hebrew word is to lift, to lift up and off. It's the same word that appears later in the day of atonement when God says to the priest, I want you to bring the sins of the people, put them on the head of a goat, and that goat's going to be called the scapegoat, and I want you to shoo it away. And when it disappears over the horizon, I want you to realize that your sins have been taken away just like that. They've been lifted up and carried away. Because that's the kind of Savior I'm going to bring. My son. Who will substitute for the just, the wrath that you deserve. He will pay the penalty of my justice so that I can love you with integrity. Nahum says, it's in the cross that love and justice meet. Do you want to be justified? Do you want to be saved from the wrath of God? Then come to Christ. Let him lift your sins from you and put on you instead his righteousness. That's what it means to become a Christian. And when you are hidden in Christ, in his righteousness, you have this confidence that when judgment comes at the great day against all your enemies... You will be saved, not because you're good, but because you're hidden in the righteousness of Christ. Judgment will be good news. Christ will become Lord and King over all his and your enemies. He will be. As he puts all of his enemies under his feet, those feet for you will be those that bring good news of peace. Nineteen eighty nine was the marked the worst British sports disaster in their history. Semifinal match. 
in Hillsborough Stadium between Nottingham and Liverpool. The police didn't handle the situation right. The police chief in particular, and he let too many people in and they crushed the people in the front. 96 of them died. 766 were sent to the hospital. The police chief made up a lie to cover his irresponsibility. And it, 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 it took legs. It got life. It, the lie was that it was those drunken, ticketless, irresponsible Liverpool fans who overwhelmed the, the, uh, the police and pressed their way in and killed the fans. Toxicology reports showed that wasn't the case. Internal memos eventually demonstrated that was not the case. It was an intentionally told lie. But because the people of Liverpool were looked down on as uncouth and uncultured and, and of no real importance or uh, with uh, social gravitas at all, they, their case was ignored A government official named Andrew Burnham came to Hillsborough Stadium on the 20th anniversary of that tragedy. <clears throat> he started to speak, and somebody among the thousands of fans yelled, Justice! Somebody else echoed, Justice! One after another, Justice! And then, in that Cockney accent, that raw Cockney accent, they began to yell, Justice for the 96, Justice for the 96, Justice for the 96, over and over and over, they drown him out. There's no way he could complete his speech. He waved as if to say, I understand, I'll do something. And he did. He made public the records. He exposed the lies. Justice was brought on those officials. Vindication for those fans. A day is coming, brothers and sisters. No matter what it is, you're enduring. Your city's enduring. Your nation, people around the world. Or being denied justice. The day is coming when Jesus will say, Justice for my beloved. Justice. He'll not only call for it, he will effect it. Conquer all his enemies, even death and hell, and put them under his feet, and we will live at When you come to this table, you're not only celebrating the peace you personally have with God, but you're also celebrating the anticipation of the day, as Jesus promised, when we will sit down with him in his kingdom and eat and drink with him in his fulfilled kingdom. This is the celebration of the defeat 
of all his enemies. The perfect coming of justice.